We all find ourselves making decisions every day. Whether it's something as simple as choosing a meal or an outfit, or something more involved like making a product purchase, we assess our options and make a choice. But what if you didn't have the luxury of time or choice? What if a decision you had to make affected the very lives of the people in your care? And what if you were thousands of miles away from civilization with little to no resources at your disposal? This is the scenario faced by the Antarctic explorers of the heroic age. Explorers like Robert Falcon Scott, Raoul Amundsen, and Ernest Shackleton. We know their stories, their plans, their successes, their failures. They did things that no one had done before in the most extreme conditions on the planet. They had to exhibit exceptional leadership skills. Things like preparation and flexibility, getting people to work together, looking for opportunities amid disaster, leading with hope, courage, and determination, and finding purpose in their work. All skills and attributes that should sound familiar to anyone who's interested in leadership in the present day. Only we have the luxury of doing it in temperatures warmer than 70 degrees below zero. Have you ever admired a leader and wondered just what it is that makes her who she is? How he came to embrace the things that advanced him? Welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we look at the principles that define success. This is a show for leaders at all stages of their careers who aspire to understand what it truly means to be a leader. And who is a leader? Dolly Parton said, If your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. Together, we'll explore key principles, not only in the sense of fundamentals, but also in the ethical sense, the habits, character traits, and virtues that form the backbone of leadership, principles that are just as relevant and essential in the 21st century as they were in the first century. This is Timeless Leadership. Hi there, and welcome to Timeless Leadership, where we explore the principles and virtues that accompany successful and admirable leaders. I'm your host, Scott Monty. Feel free to listen to and follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. I release new episodes every other week. And on the off weeks, you can listen to another show I do called Storytime. It's a five-minute show that features familiar names and events, but told from a different perspective. And it's an exercise in storytelling, which is an, ex an essential skill for every leader. Now, it's in a separate feed than this show, but you can find it on the Timeless and Timely site through that link in our show notes at timelesstimely.com. Take some time to poke around there, see what uh, appeals to you, and subscribe to the newsletter. 
while you are at it. And this site and newsletter really captures my thoughts on human nature and leadership in our ever-changing world. And it provides some of the topics I use in my speeches and executive coaching services. So if I can help your team in that regard, please email me at timeless at scottmonte.com. And one more thing. Could you do me a favor as you listen? Could you share this episode with people who you think might find something of interest in it? Your recommendation is really the highest praise that I could ask for. Thanks. Brad Borkin has a lifelong interest in how people and businesses survive and thrive in almost impossible situations. Brad has a degree in decision sciences from the University of Pennsylvania and a strong multinational business background, enabling him to relate his talks to the modern business needs of leadership, teamwork, goal attainment, and effective decision-making. Brad is a full-time author who previously worked at global software companies, including SAP, Siebel Systems, and Oracle, helping their Fortune 500 clients improve their decision processes. Brad's the author of two books, Audacious Goals, Remarkable Results, How an Explorer, an Engineer, and a Statesman Shaped Our Modern World, and When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. Brad has spoken at a wide range of companies and at specialist Antarctic conferences in Norway, Ireland, and the UK, and has appeared on a number of American cable TV and internet radio and podcast shows. Originally from the United States, Brad is now based in London, where he was made a fellow of the Royal Geographic Society. And he's here to speak with us about his book, When Your Life Depends on It. Brad Borkin, welcome to Timeless Leadership. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Great honor to be on your show. Well, I can't tell you how excited I am because I am kind of a geek when it comes to Antarctic exploration. And uh, even as, as a, a dilettante, a dabbler, I feel like I learned an awful lot from reading your book. So uh, why don't you just frame it for everyone? Because I think there's four major uh, explorers that you talk about, and certainly three of them are uh, more well-known and two, in fact, more than the others. So I'll leave it to you. Great. The Antarctica is just the most fascinating place as well as it has the most fascinating history. And so it started out with these four explorers. And what my co-author and I were interested in looking at was why were these four explorers, and they um, among them had six expeditions, what was unique about these expeditions above all other expeditions, either to the South Polar areas or to the Arctic, that just made them exemplars of, of leadership and teamwork and achievement. And it, it just led to, to fascinating discussions with many people and thought the key to all this is about decision-making. And that's what led to the book. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting to me because the way you, you open the book is to remind us that all of this happened you know, 100, 120 years ago or so, it was a very different world in which we lived. And the explorers that went to Antarctica found themselves in a very different part 
of the world without the usual uh, creature comforts. As, as basic as creature comforts were in 1900, they were even less so in the Antarctic. Um, can, can you talk about what, what a leader, what a team um, is faced with or what, what they were faced with in those very specific and severe circumstances? Well, there are numerous different things that can basically kill you in Antarctica. And whether it's scurvy, uh, the cold weather, frostbite, uh, uh, hypothermia, falling into a crevasse. I mean, just numerous, numerous different things. And the leaders had, each expedition had a specific goal. Not every expedition's goal was to get to the South Pole. But certainly every expedition had a goal of getting everyone to achieve the goal, and sometimes there are multiple goals, and get everyone home again. And the challenge is that these are not, it's not like climbing a mountain where you go to climb a mountain and even Everest, it may be a one month or multi-month expedition. These are multi-year expeditions where for at least half the year, you're in uh, Antarctic winter. It's colder, it's, it's darker, and people are just under stress and in many different ways. And the challenge is keeping the team together, that it doesn't descend into murder, mayhem, sabotage, fistfights. It really is how do you keep the team functioning year after year after year in these extreme conditions? And, and what was remarkable about these six expeditions, and, and the, as I said, it was six foreign leaders, six expeditions, but what was remarkable is that they didn't descend into those they really stayed true to their purpose. And uh, do you think that's because they essentially were always faced with a common enemy being you know, the, the environment, the conditions? It, I think it was more a focus on goals as opposed to, it, it, it wasn't the, the, in a sense, the enemy that focused them. It was more the fact that they, the goals were simple. The goals were well understood by every team member. Their roles, the team members' roles were well understood and well communicated. And in, in certain circumstances, I mean, when they were faced with changing circumstances, um, the goals changed, right? I mean, they, they didn't have a choice at that point. They just kind of had to do a, a hard reset. Can you give a couple examples of how those um, circumstances changed and the goals necessarily changed as a result? Well, certainly the most famous one was, was when Shackleton's ship was crushed in the ice. And that was, one, that was probably one of the last expeditions in what was called the heroic age. But once the ship was crushed in the ice and they had to figure out how they're gonna get themselves home. And one of the th remarkable things about all these expeditions and we say in the book is that there's no communication except as far as you can shout. There's no one going to come rescue you. There's nobody's going to, uh, there's no one you can call upon. And, and as we say in the book also, even if you could call somebody, no one has ever been in your circumstances and could actually give you any, any sane or, or useful advice. I mean, you're really on your own and they had to improvise and develop ways of working as teams. And, and I think what comes out of that one of the big lessons that, well, there are numerous lessons that came out of, of looking at these, but one of the lessons was having a second command and that the teams that functioned well, no matter how small the team was, even sometimes in teams of three people, you'd have a leader and you'd have a second in command. And, uh, but when you get into teams of like five, six, seven, 
people are larger, it gave just a, a sense of camaraderie between the men being able, as all men in, in those, that era, it gave a, a sense of camaraderie that they go, they could raise a grievance to a second in command without raising it to the leader. And I think that that led a lot of of, of value to the 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 cohesiveness of the, of the teams. That's interesting. And I mean, most of the uh, explorers were uh, military or Navy men in particular. So they understood kind of that, that hierarchy. And um, what a, uh, I, I think a progressive kind of leadership that the number one guy in charge was willing to delegate power uh, to a deputy that often, you know, in those ages you hear of command and control and, you know, top down. Um, that, talk a little bit more about that deputization and the distribution of leadership, maybe more of a flat leadership uh, style than we're traditionally used to. Well, the, the, it, it, the, they were quite mixed, these, these groups, because you had people from the military. So in a sense, the, the leaders were from the military fundamentally, at least, at least when you came to, to people like, like Scott, Captain Scott. And, uh, but then you had other people on the, on the teams that were scientists and they were not military people. And you had other people who were just uh, the chef and, and, and other people who come on onto the expedition. And they, they were not military people, but so you had a military structure, but you didn't have everyone adhering strictly to a military structure. And I think that was part of the challenge of, of leadership in that environment. I mean, you also can equate that to like a, uh, uh, nowadays we have these public uh, private partnerships between companies and government, and they're trying to work together to, to solve a problem. And it's the same, same situation. How do you get everyone to, to adhere when some people are used to a very rigid structure and some people are used to a, a more fluid structure. And, and that, um, that, that diverse kind of team, I mean, that led to um, all kinds of preparation that probably wouldn't have been the case if it was, you know, just kind of the, the same vertically integrated team. And, and I know preparation is a, uh, a major feature in the book. It's, it's one chapter. Can you help us understand how you prepare for something? In some cases, that is unknown, where you're, you're the first to go into something, where you're paving the road behind you, so to speak. How do you prepare for a situation like that? Well, it's actually quite quite interesting what they did because you'd think well that they would just take lots of sleeping bags and tents and all this stuff. I mean, they take it all from from if there was a British expedition, they'd take it all from Britain. If it was a, a, a Mawson who led an Australian expedition, would take it all from Australia. That they um, and Amundsen from Norway would you know you bring all your supplies and everything from from there. But actually, what you, what they were doing a lot of times they were bring raw materials. They bring cloth, they bring sewing equipment, th th thread and needles. And they were uh, constantly, uh, and they had pieces of wood and metal and different sorts of things they could, they could improvise with. And they were constantly tinkering and changing it and testing things out when they were down there. Because what was interesting about these expeditions was they'd go down They'd sail from, let's take the, the British ones, they'd sail from Britain in the summertime and they'd get down to Antarctica 
And then they would be there in time for the winter, for Antarctica's winter. So don't forget the seasons are reversed compared to what we're, we're used to, but the, uh, in terms of, of the months of the year. So you're talking about uh, spring, summer in Antarctica being around November, December, January. And so they would sail down British spring, summertime, get down to Antarctica just at the start of uh, a, a winter season in a sense, because the sailing times were so long. And, they, um, and then they'd overwinter. Well, how are you gonna keep the men happy and inter entertained and, and focused on, on work during the cold, darker winter months? And part of it was building the supplies that they'd need. So uh, make it, testing out equipment, but also making sure that the clothing was, was, was what they needed and the sleeping bags are what they needed and so on. So it, so actually it was like, it was quite a, a, a mix of, of enterprise when they were down there and work when they were down there. And, and, and part of that was make work and some of that was, was quite necessary work and also built that team unity. Yeah, and I, I, that's that's really key right there. Is that, you know, first of all, they're kind of making decisions on the spot from raw materials. They they see what they need at that point, and then they're able to uh, to construct it. But that that last point there about building camaraderie and cohesiveness among your team. I mean, look when when you're in negative seventy degree Fahrenheit weather, when it's completely dark or nearly completely dark for months. Um, you can go stir crazy and what a great way to keep your team busy and doing something of utility and in service to each other uh, that creates that type, that sense of loyalty, because, you know, let, let's, let's not forget these doctors and scientists and Navy men and navigators, et cetera. They likely haven't worked together before. Right. Exactly. So this this is a a really extreme team building exercise. That's right. That's right. Yeah, like a six month team building exercise. That's right. <laughs> but there were there were there were numerous things that they were doing that that uh, uh, where they were trying to figure out how, especially in the early expeditions, how to travel and 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 live and work in this extreme environment. And so at one point they had this idea: well, three man sleeping bags will be warmer than a one man sleeping bag. So if you're going to go, go camping out, you know, with, on a, on a, a, a voyage south, because they were often experimenting, how do how do you travel in these southern regions? Because once you get away from the coastline, you're in um, more extreme territory. No one, and like we said, no one can come rescue you because no one will have any communication to where you are. And the, the, so they, they were experimenting with the three man sleeping bags and realized no one ever got any sleep in them. Because every time you roll over, which is like in your single sleeping bag, you, one person rolls over, the, the, the sleeping bag starts rolling over. And, and, uh, and so they go back to the to base camp and realize, okay, we need to re-sew this back to a different, different style. So Yeah, yeah. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the different journeys. I think Shackleton is certainly more well-known these days. I think in the last couple of decades, Shackleton and leadership and resilience and uh, have have all become uh, fairly commonly known, but why don't you walk us through what the Scott and Amundsen uh, expeditions were doing and how uh, it was really a race against time and against each other and how they each faced it. 
Well, this is this is one of the most interesting stories that came out of Antarctica from that period. And also, I'd like to dispel a few myths as well, because I think over the years, there's been this sense of Amundsen did everything right and Scott did everything wrong and Scott ended up dying and uh, and Amundsen was proof that he was a skilled leader and Scott was a bumbling, unskilled leader. And so we like just took just, just the scene and I can explain a bit about, about this, which is that when you go back, starting with the first real major British expedition, which Scott ran, which was in 1901 to 1904. And, and he, that was a small team focused on, on science primarily, and just to experiment getting into the Southern, getting away from the coastline and towards Antarctica, towards, towards the South Pole. Sorry, they're in Antarctica, they're getting towards the South Pole. And so, so Shackleton was actually a junior member on that team. And on, on that expedition, there was Scott and his right-hand man, Dr. Edward Wilson and Shackleton set out a three-man team just to say, let's see how far we can get to towards, no, we're not, we know we won't get to the South Pole, but at least let's try. And not, not to get to the South Pole, but let's try to understand what it is to travel in the Antarctic region. And Shackleton at the end of that gets scurvy uh, on the way back. He's so weak and, and so close to death that they're pulling him back on the sledge. So everything is, that they're carrying is on the sledge and they're, uh, Scott and Wilson are pulling the sledge and Shackleton is near death. And they, they do eventually get back. And, and so that's sort of Scott's entry into Antarctica. He runs a very good, very excellent scientific expedition in 1901 to 1904 exactly the same time as this, or roughly almost exactly the same time from Amundsen is cutting his teeth, but he's in the Arctic. He's, he's uh, trying to get to, through the Northwest Passage. So the Northwest Passage is there was always from, for 400 years, people have believed there was a, a sea route across Northern Canada that would take you from Europe, across to Greenland, across Northern Canada to Alaska and over to Asia. So it'd be a trading route that you could figure out through the ice and through the islands of Northern Canada. And no one had ever done this in 400 years. I mean, people, famous explorers, um, Henry Cabot, lots of different explorers tried to do this. A number of them uh, died in, in the process. Sir John Franklin and his whole expedition died in the process. And Amundsen takes a very small team and a very small boat and does it and sails the Northwest Passage. And, but he's, as part of that process, he's living at various parts of that journey. He's living with, with Inuit people, with, with indigenous people. He's learning how they live in the very cold regions, how they travel in the very cold regions. He's getting real firsthand experience. And so he does that and becomes a big success. Scott's first expedition is quite a big success. And it sort of sets up this, this, this rivalry in a way, but also in amongst this rivalry is Shackleton after, and there's still the desire, no one has yet gotten to the North Pole. No one has yet gotten to the South Pole. So you end up with this situation where Shackleton's like, okay, well, I may, may have nearly died on that first expedition with, with Scott, but 
I'm going to go set up an expedition. He, he was a very gregarious, outgoing uh, guy, very, very personable and organized a bunch of, of, of people to help him try to get to the South Pole. And he organized an expedition and they very nearly get there. And there's a wonderful management lesson, leadership lesson in this. In this. Uh, and then we'll get into the Amundsen-Scott rivalry. But this, but Amundsen, but Shackleton almost gets to the South Pole. They get, he and three men get to within 150 miles. So just figure, so they get, sorry, they get to within 103 miles of the South Pole. And they're running out of food. So don't forget everything you're carrying, you're carrying on your sledges, tents, sleeping bag, cooking fuel, food, everything that, that you've got, your navigational instruments, there's, uh, and they get to within 103 miles of the South Pole and they realize that they do the calculations, they know they cannot get there. And uh, they, and Shackleton realizes they need to turn back. But what he does, and you think about binary decisions, like there's either you go forward or you go back, either go forward to the South Pole and they die on the way back, or they get to, the, or they just turn back. And, and Shackleton made a very clever decision, which was he said, we're going to leave all the tents and sleeping bag and everything behind, and then go as far south as we can for one day. We'll plant the British flag, and then we'll turn around and go back to our camp and then head home. And he did that for a very specific reason to cross the hundred mile mark. He said, if we can get back to Britain, at least having crossed the hundred mile mark, we have achieved something. We haven't achieved our goal, but we've achieved something. So that was a long winded way to get into the Scott Amundsen story. Yeah. And I mean, now you're talking about two leaders who have had polar expeditions, each at the opposite ends of the earth. Um, two very different expeditions, very successful expeditions that have accomplished something in their own right. So help us, help us understand how those previous expeditions then prepared Scott and Amundsen and how they approached their uh, tackling of the South Pole slightly differently as they raced against each other. So, so this is quite, quite interesting because so, so Shackleton had pioneered the route to the South Pole. I mean, he didn't get there, but at least they knew this is the way you get there because the, there's a terrain challenge that you have. Not only are you trekking out about 800 miles from the coast, uh, the challenge is the South Pole is at a level of about 10,000 feet. There's, a, there's a, what's called the polar plateau. And you're, when you are at sea level, on the ice at sea level or on the land at sea level, you're basically at some point, you're gonna to have to ascend. And for Shackleton, he found a way up through this glacier called the Beardmore Glacier to get up to the Polar Plateau, which is 10,000 feet above sea level. And uh, so Scott, when he's planning his expedition, it was, it was called the Terra Nova expedition named after the ship. And he's gonna take exactly the same route that Shackleton took. He's going to go up the Beardmore Glacier, exactly the same place, and follow that same route and just continue on with better food. And now they knew a bit more about the sorts of food they needed. They knew a bit more. He was going to take motor sledges. So they started pioneering. How do you take 
a, a motorized transport there, treaded things almost that look like almost like treaded wheels like tanks have. Uh, and uh, and at least you can drive those on the ice. You may not be able, on the level areas. You wouldn't be able to take them further, but at least they could do part of the, the journey. He's going to take ponies. He's going to take dogs. He's going to take scientists. He's going to take lots of equipment. It was going to be a, 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 an expedition and he was going to be unchallenged. At the same time, there was there was a desire. Amundsen still had the desire to go to the North Pole because North Pole wasn't yet discovered, at least up until about 1909, when F Frederick Cook and Admiral Perry, both from the U.S., claimed that they each had gotten to the, to the North Pole. Now, actually, neither of them ever got to the North Pole, but but the, the reality was that that they each claimed they had achieved it. So Amundsen, who had put together a team of people and uh, the ship, the Fram, and was about ready to embark to the North Pole, decides, well, if the North Pole is taken, I'm gonna head south and challenge Scott. So he um, says, so Scott uh, is, he had taken the Terra Nova down from Britain, down to Australia to restock and refuel and, and, and do everything they needed to do for that ship. And Amundsen sends him a telegram in Australia which is very cryptic, which said something to the effect of beg leave to remont to, uh, let me just look up the, beg leave to inform you Fram proceeding Antarctic. That's all he said. It was like this really cryptic. It didn't say, I'm challenging you to the South Pole. It's just beg leave to inform you. And, and but clearly he's, it, Scott understands what he's saying. It's like, he's saying, I'm heading to the South Pole and I'm going. And Amundsen, it, bravely, Hamas is a person who studied everything in great detail. And he realized that setting up camp on the ice, your base camp on the ice has certain risk because ice was calving off. No different than it is today, only it does today, that ice shelf breaks off in quite big dramatic ways. Then it would break off in less dramatic ways, but it is still a risk. So Amundsen's like, well, I don't want to go where Scott is. I'm going to go to this other area. I, I will be pioneering a new route to the South Pole, and I'm going to take a risk being on the ice, but I think it's safe because I think the ice will hold for one or two years. And we set up camp and we'll be, the base camp will be safe. And, and, but, but Scott has a scientific desire. He, he has a scientific program he's going to do, and he decides wisely or unwisely, you, uh, people can argue it either way, he's gonna continue with what he's doing and not change his game plan. I mean, you may like to compare that to businesses today. Would you change your game plan based on what your competitors are doing? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a really uh, essential question. And I mean, we can play what if all day long. I mean, uh, the, the, the situation may have ended uh, a little bit differently as a result, if he had if he had uh, made a different decision, so so you've got Amundsen who has studied uh, you know the conditions and has made his decision and taking a risk. You've got Scott who is following kind of a tried and true method and knows the path forward and is um, diversifying his transport uh, capabilities, as you say, dogs, ponies, and motorized sledges. Um, so where does that leave the two when it comes to arriving at the South Pole? Well, Amundsen gets there first. And Amundsen 
is very well organized. I mean, he basically has, he has a singular purpose, getting to the South Pole. And he's not perfect in what, in his decision-making because he's so anxious. He so believes that with Scott's motor, motor, motor tractors that he might have an advantage or that Scott may have an advantage because he's got ponies or he's got dogs. He's got, he, he, and Amundsen said, as soon as winter breaks, we're going to head out and we're going to go out with dogs. He, he brought down the equivalent of about a hundred dogs and some of the dogs had puppies. So also they end up with like 116 dogs to choose from, to choose the very best. And Amundsen also being the consummate planner that he was brought down probably the best skier of no that Norway had brought down the best dog sled driver in the world. And he had, he had a team that were all experts and quite in contrast to, to the British team where they didn't really know, quite know how to ski. They didn't really quite know how to drive dogs. They, but they had experience because Scott had been there before. Scott had been in Antarctica before. They had knowledge from Shackleton's team. They have some of the Shackleton's, the people who had been with Shackleton had, some of those people were on Scott's team. There, there was enough knowledge that they felt they had knowledge as well. But Amundsen had re, re, real knowledge as well as he had, having learned a lot in the Arctic from the Inuit people and the clothing and things. I mean, he had these, these furs. He, they even brought a sauna. The Norwegians even had a sauna in their base camp. So they were like, uh, they were well-equipped, singular of purpose, and he starts out early as soon as winter breaks, but it's still exceedingly cold. And they, they travel out and it's just so cold that the, the dogs are freezing, the men are freezing. They get to a stage where they're just like, we can't go any further. They depot the supplies. So they empty out the sleds of sledges of, of the um, supplies into a depot and they retreat to base camp. And that retreat to base camp is basically every man for themselves. So each man had their own sledge and their own dogs. And so he's like, they just had a rate and some, and one of the men almost died and another man stopped to help him. And it was like, it, it was literally sort of disastrous. I mean, they all survived, but it was not well thought out. And it's, when people say, oh, Amundsen was so such a great planner. Well, not in that case. But they all survived and they all came back and they regrouped and they waited about three weeks, weather got warmer, they set out again. They were, they pioneered an excellent route. They were, they had good weather. The dogs performed well, again, with great dog, dog drivers, great dogs, uh, knowing what they were doing, they, they achieved the goal and they got to the South Pole first. Uh, yeah. Scott made a disastrous decision and there's no denying that for Scott, who was the youngest battleship commander in the British Navy. So he wasn't, he was no slouch. He was no bumbling, uh, incompetent leader. He was a, an accomplished leader. They had achieved good scientific work, excellent scientific work on, on this, this uh, expedition, on both expeditions. And um, hopefully there's time to talk a little bit about the Scott legacy at the end of this. But the... Um, uh, he made a disastrous decision, which was they were traveling very well in four man teams. And what he did was he sort of think they started out with 16 men with dogs and sledges and ponies. And then as they get 
make mileage, one team drops back. And so then they have 12 men, sledges, dogs, and then another team drops back. And so eventually you end up with a point team that's four men going to the South Pole. It seems like a, a logical way to go. And, uh, uh, and well thought out, they had plenty of food, but the challenge that they had, both Amundsen and uh, Scott were camper because no one knew what calories were. And as someone, someone was described to me, they said, you need to be eating the equivalent of three Christmas dinners every day to be keeping your calorie intake up. And they had no idea what calories were, they had no idea what vitamins were. And so they were all suffering, though they were eating, they were not necessarily eating the enough calories to maintain uh, the, the, what they needed to do in that cold weather. The, um, and then when it's time for the last supporting team to drop back, Scott makes a terrible decision and he decides to take one of the supporting team, one of the four, bring it to his team. So now he's got five, the last re retreating team has three. And, and just to, to do a quick summary of, of that, the last retreating team barely survives getting back the phenomenal story in the book about, about that. But the, um, uh, what Scott didn't count on was, yes, the fifth man was, a, he was not a very tall man, his name was Bowers but he was very stocky and he was incredibly strong. He was like the strongest of all the, all the men. And so he was, um, Scott thought, well, what we'll do is we'll, we'll go so fast towards the pole. We only have like 150 miles to go. We'll, by the time we're coming back, we'll catch up to that three man team and we'll be able to help them get back uh, because we'll make such good time. But what he didn't count on was there was, a, there was an injury to one of the men, uh, uh, one of the other men started getting frostbitten very badly. And in the end, they got to the pole five weeks after Amundsen. One can, it's hard to surmise how to, much the sadness they would have had about being there late and then being second. And then the journey back, they hit uh, bad weather frostbite, uh, the injury getting worse and worse and worse. And, and it just ended up that they ended up all dying. Yeah. Man, uh, <laughs> real downer. Um, so, and, and, you know, one of the other things that strikes me is the difference between these two is when your motorized vehicles, um, although they're cutting edge technology, when they do break down, you can't eat them. And, and when, when you're out there in the middle, literally in the middle of nowhere, and there is no uh, uh, food or fuel to sustain you. There's no plants, uh, vegetation, or anything else you can live off of. That's all you've got. You, you know, if, if you've got dogs and ponies, well, okay, there's horse meat and dog meat. And while it doesn't seem too delectable to those of us living in the 21st century, that was the reality when you were in the, the middle of wilderness there. And that seemed to, uh, to work against him as well. That's right. So you think of dogs, the dogs are like our old technology, ponies and, and motor tractors and dogs. Yeah, yeah. Scott was hedging his bets on all, all these different things. The one thing that they didn't count on with ponies, well, they knew that ponies are not carnivorous. So you can't feed a dead pony to another pony, which you can with dogs. And that's what Amundsen was doing, was killing dogs and then feeding them to the other dogs. As brutal and heartless as that sounds, that was the mechanism to achieve their goal. The uh, the challenge with the ponies was not only were the ponies not carnivorous, so they had to not carry not only the human food, they had to carry the, the food for the ponies, 
but ponies got very cold and, and, and every night when they camped, they'd had to build these walls next to the ponies. So the, the wind would not freeze the ponies because they're not as, as sturdy as, as sledge dogs. And the ponies being ponies would kick the dog, kick the walls down. So they'd have to go up in the middle of the night and rebuild the, the walls again. And, and that would, that was draining to the, to the men. Amundsen's didn't have that. One, actually, one difference that's a really important is, that's worth mentioning, is Amundsen took the approach, our, we are going to travel so many miles on this day. When we reach that mileage, if we do it in two hours, we stop. If we do it in five hours, we stop. If we do it in seven hours, we stop. But we're going to stop when we reach that mileage. And Scott was different. Scott's saying, well, if the weather's good, we're feeling good, we'll just keep going. Which meant the men never knew when they were going to stop. They, oh. And you could say, well, I'm, there were days when, when the weather was fine, the conditions were fine, the dogs were pulling well. I was able, they did the whole mileage in two, two, two hours. And they'd be like, okay, rest the dogs, rest the men, you know, have, a, have an easy day of it. And Scott would be pushing them in, pushing them in. And, and I think that took its toll as well. And I think that is the difference between Amundsen's leadership style. If, if Scott had come through and been first to the poll, everyone would be, Scott took a brilliant pro-troach, he was, he was doing this. But I think in retrospect, that the mental value of being able to say to people, this is your goal for the day. And when we achieve it, we're stopping. <laughs> there must yeah. be a tremendous value in that. Yeah, I mean, it's really about setting expectations and and delivering on those expectations. Um, you know, we all know how difficult it is when you've got a manager who kind of yanks the rug out from under you or, you know, greets you with a surprise for the day. Um, it catches people off balance and, and can erode trust as a result, not, not to mention just kind of sap the, uh, the creativity and the energy of the team uh, in, the, in the process. That's so, right. You, you, you mentioned Scott's legacy, and I do want to focus on this because I find this fascinating. Um, I, I wonder if Scott were successful, <laughs> if we would still hold him in the same regard, even though you, know, you, you, you were uh, helpfully trying to uh, have us understand that he wasn't an adult, he wasn't uh, incompetent, quite far from it. But the history of Scott's legacy really is that he failed. He had what uh, eleven miles to go uh, when he finally perished before he would reach that uh, that uh, final depot. That's right. Yes, but they were in terrible condition. They were in terrible shape like that at that stage. I think one of the things that that is worth considering as well. So, so they had laid both. Amundsen's team and Scott's team had laid depots. So when we talk about depots, we're saying they left supplies of food and, and fuel and things like that. So we're talking about fuel, we're talking about cooking fuel, fuel used to heat uh, uh, like a camp stove, and that would also help warm the tent. But the, um, the both teams, in before they set out on the long journey, had laid depots along the way in short runs to for the depots. And then actually when they were going out, they also laid some depots as well. The idea you pick up the depots on your return journey. So, um, so yes, yeah, so Scott died 11 miles from one of the big depots. The thing was that it's possible that one or two of the men could have gotten all the way to, 
of, of Scott's men. At that point, Scott was so frostbitten. One of his feet was so frostbitten, he couldn't have moved. But the one of the men or two of the men could have gotten to the depot. The thing was they could not have probably gotten back to the tent to rescue Scott. And in that case, they would have chosen, they chose to stay with Scott. And I think that's testament to his leadership that you might think, well, why won't you just die in your tracks? Why won't you push forward? And I think it was because they didn't want to leave Scott behind. Mm. And, and I think th- there was a real loyalty to Scott among his men, not every man, but of course that's true of every leader. Not everyone's going to love every leader and that's the nature of leadership. But, uh, but in terms of Scott's legacy, there's so many great things that came out of their expedition. And, and probably just to start with, they, um, th- one of the things that they did was they, he pioneered the, the design of tents so that you could basically put up a tent, the tent that Scott pioneered with using, using um, uh, stakes and, and, and cloth that they could put up in a blizzard and put up in, in like a minute or two. And uh, so nowadays you have a tent and you put those, you put the plastic things through the, the loops of the tent and that's how you put it, where they kept a tent as one single structure. It folded down. And yes, it's a big object when it's on the sledge, but on the other hand, in a blizzard, you can, you can pop it up very, very quickly. And uh, so they pioneered um, how they used the runners on the sledges it used to be thought that you put silver on the sledges and that makes them go better. And they realized actually take those, take that off pure wood sl- runners work better. They, they pioneered layered clothing. So where Amundsen's is wearing furs, they were wearing uh, cloth and Burberry fabrics and, and woolen fabrics, the way the concept of, of, you're, they're working in the cold weather, but they're also surviving the cold weather. Being able to layer clothing on and off that we talk about, take for granted today, something that they really pioneered in a big way. The other thing is he had the first manned flight. They took a helium balloon because it's like, how do you see the terrain? There's no airplanes down in Antarctica. So they, they took an enormous helium balloon and had the first manned flight into uh, a helium balloon flight in Antarctica. And that's dangerous and risky. They had they brought down a professional photographer. And when we think about today, when you think about David Attenborough and the great uh, uh, videos and things you see on television, all that pioneered from Scott's day when Scott brought down a professional photographer named Herbert Ponting. And Ponting took these amazing videos and, and photographs of the expedition. And that was where you're blending exploration, discovery, science and photography. And that was really a precursor to everything that, that we see now into the natural world uh, photography and, and those sorts of things. But then there's a science as well, which was, uh, I, I don't know if you, you recall, your listeners will recall the banning of DDT, uh, in, in, which has been banned around the world. So DDT was a pesticide used for um, on crops and it's used widely around the world. And, and it was determined that actually it's, 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 it's very bad. It's turning up in all sorts of different animals and believed it was getting into the food chain and in, in humans. And people were saying, we need to ban this substance. And said, it's, it's even turning up in penguins in Antarctica. 
And people said, well, what if DDT is just normal in a penguin? And they said, oh, let's go back to the penguins that Scott brought back. The skins are the penguins that Scott brought back from his 1901 expedition. And also they brought back some from the Terra Nova expedition. And let's compare those penguin skins to what penguins are, are today. And this is you're talking about the 1960s. And they realized, okay, it is, DDT is getting into modern penguins and we have to ban it. And that was part of the start of the banning of the worldwide banning of DDT. Uh, some, of the, some of the samples and things that Scott brought back from the Terra Nova expedition, the scientists brought back are being analyzed today using modern methods so you're actually using modern technology to analyze things. And, and a lot of his, his studies are also the, the basis for climate change today. And so we, when we look, talk about climate change in Antarctica, you're able to measure because you're able to measure against the base measurements that they did in the early 1900s. Yeah. But there's one other that I really need to share because this is really quite remarkable. So Scott's team is literally dying. They're, they know they're going, they, they, they are so weakened on, as they're traveling, having been come sick to the South Pole, they're traveling, they, they're weakening. Uh, they know one of the members is, has injured his hand, which is getting just worse and worse and worse uh, and, and won't recover. They're, one of, they're getting frostbite, they're just, and they stop and they're collecting fossils and rocks. And they collect about 35 pounds weight, uh, uh, number of kilograms, 2015, 20 kilograms weight of, of, of fossils and rocks. And they put them on the sledge. Now, normally you'd think anyone's trying to survive, you've jettisoned everything that you can possibly can from the sledge. They're adding these. And uh, they get to the stage where they, they, they die in their, their tent. So you've got... Um, uh, Scott, Wilson, and Bowers together. Oates had already, already died. He's the one who said, famously said, was, you know, just going out for some time. Uh, and, and Evans uh, had died earlier, a few day, number of days earlier. So basically, there's three of them in the tent. They died. And later, uh, about half a year later, the men at base camp were able to come and search for Scott, knowing he's dead, but they search and they find the tent. They find the bodies, they find the diaries, the photographs, everything with well, not photographs, but find cameras from which the photographs are made. They find everything. And the one thing they also find is these rocks and fossils. So what, the, what did the fossils show? The fossils showed a fern, which I don't know if I can pronounce right, Glossopteris. And that fern is found in Southern Australia, in Southern Africa, in Southern Australia, and now in Antarctica, and it proved that all the, the way the, the continents look like they fit together, it proved they fit together. Because the thing with this fern is the seeds are so heavy, they can't be carried in the wind. They could be carried on an animal, they could be carried uh, you know, on the fur of an animal or, or in the um, feces of the animal, but, what, but whatever. They, the, the, so the reason this fern exists in these different continents is because they were at one point joined together. And, and that was a start and proof and they were of, of things like that we take for granted today, like plate tectonics. So it's really like the scientific legacy of this expedition is really quite remarkable. Yeah. And yet, yes, sadly they, sadly they died. 
but they knew what the fossils were. They knew what they had. They, they pioneered so many different innovations. They're almost like the NASA of their time. Like we credit NASA with all these different innovations. Scott's expedition was really like the, the NASA expedition of their time. Like even, even the treads on the motor tractors or with the, the motor sledges uh, are reminiscent of what you, you had in World War I of, of treaded tanks. So World yeah. War I happened a few years later, but they, that pioneering all-terrain vehicles was, yeah. was part of their expedition. So well, I mean, they, 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 they were really uh, going into the vast unknown. I mean, much like space is to us, you know, a, a lot of nothingness. That's essentially what Antarctica was at the time, the final frontier, uh, to borrow a, uh, a Star Trek term. Um, I, I want to I finish on um, uh, one of the lessons, because you do a great job in the book of kind of summing things up and giving us a sense of leadership lessons uh, that we can all take from it. Um, you know, things like resilience and adaptability and um, um, how new opportunities uh, arise out of disaster. But I want to talk uh, about the, the, the final lesson, which is really uh, reframing your success, finding purpose, um, maybe doing something noble out of it. And this is essentially what Scott and his team realized as their final days were closing in. They knew they weren't going to make it, but they knew they had to leave some record behind uh, kind of framing their journey for the rest of the world. That's right. And I think this is one of the essence of the book. It was, it was always hard to figure out how do you end the book? Do you end on success or do you end it on, on uh, the death of Scott? Or you know, how, what's, what's the, where do you end the book? Well, there, there are many interesting leadership lessons out of all of this. Um, and certainly there were, you know, one, of the, one of the big leadership lessons was that they couldn't make perfect decisions, but they could they all became good at recovering from bad decisions to some degree, but ultimately Scott's bad decision really was unrecoverable from. And they're literally lying in their tent and writing these letter, letters home uh, to loved ones, to uh, the sponsors of the expedition, to uh, the queen, to the king, to the, to the different people that they wanted to convey their message. And they're writing these incredible, heartfelt things. They're just, just um, they're not about woe is me. They're not about blame. They're not about saying, oh, if only we had taken four people rather than five. It's not uh, to the to the poll. If only Amundsen hadn't challenged us, you know, he was, he shouldn't have done that. You know, look at what he, what it, look at the, the situation he put us in or all oh, the weather or, the temperatures or uh, not having feeling like they're get consuming enough uh, foods for the, the, you know, it was none of this blame. It was all about, in, in fact, if I read one from uh, uh, what Scott wrote towards the end, had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. It's like these, uh, powerful, heartfelt words. And uh, through my, my time of, of, I've been to Antarctica, I've talked with many people who adventured and explored in Antarctica, uh, literally every single one of them say, at the end of a hard day, 
you're so cold, you're so tired, you can barely pick up a pencil or a pen to write anything. And these guys are writing these prose that are just remarkable. And, and uh, it's, it's, it's really a fascinating story of human resilience and knowing the end of it. They had the drugs to actually end it. They, they knew they could basically consume enough morphine or whatever drugs they had to, to end their lives. And they decided not to, they even wrote, they even wrote a note saying, we've decided not to, they were going, we're going sort of, we live nobly and we're going to die nobly. And the, and it's testament uh, to, to great achievement. And it's a shame that, that Scott's legacy has somewhat been tarnished by the concept that always, you know, Amundsen was great and, 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 he uh, and Scott was not so great, but unfortunately also Amundsen's reputation got tarnished because Scott died. He becomes the national hero of Great Britain. And, and he's lauded and like, you know, uh, has a, uh, there's a funeral. He's not, his body's not there, but his funeral at, at uh, Westminster Abbey and a big outpouring. Um, we just had the Queen's Jubilee just last a week ago. And you see that there are people thronging the, the the this area same thing with that was the way the funeral procession for Scott and yet there was nobody to to be and it was a, a national mourning and that influenced Amundsen that damaged Amundsen's reputation oh look at Amundsen he's so bad he 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 uh, ate the dogs and he he you know you know abused his dogs and 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 unfortunately he never got credit. For, as much credit as he should have gotten for his great achievement. And hopefully the book helps set some of the records straight. They were both great men. They were both great leaders in different styles and different ways. Absolutely, absolutely. And I have a feeling we're going to come back and discuss Amundsen and a couple of other uh, great leaders of the time in a future episode, if you'd be willing to join me again, Brad. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to. There's so much to talk about with all these all these explorers and great people. There, there absolutely is. Well, thank you for sharing your journey with us. The book is When Your Life Depends on It, Extreme Decision-Making Lessons from the Antarctic. Uh, Brad, thank you so much for being here on Timeless Leadership. Well, thanks for having me, Scott. As leaders, every decision we make, from the extreme to the mundane, has implications for the people around us. If we keep in mind the lessons from these explorers from the heroic age, we can face every day with confidence. Thank you for joining us and for being an advocate for timeless and principled leadership whenever and wherever you find it. I'm Scott Monty. Until next time, may you dream more, learn more, do more, and become more. For you, our leader.